The day was May 19th, 1990. I had just finished my sophomore year of college, and I got a phone call from a fraternity brother that one of our fraternity brothers and a um, teammate of mine on the football team had died in a construction accident. He was blown off of a roof, installing a, a sunroof. And I remember getting that phone call and driving to that funeral. One of the toughest funerals I've ever been to. And at that point in my life, my biggest trial to that point, I think, had been I didn't win the epic battle to be the starting linebacker on the football team. So it was a mind shift for me. It was a new experience for me that later that year I would take a class in evolution and I would be confronted with a conflict between science and religion and I would begin to ask some serious questions about my faith. And it seemed to me at the time that all the really smart people seemed to be more on the science side and maybe not as smart on the other side. That just seemed to be my experience. And as I was, as a young man, trying to process all of that, I had some struggles. And I really, for the next four years, went down a path of what we would now call deconstructing. They didn't use that term back then. But I was questioning my faith. I was questioning what I really believed in. I questioned some of the the truths that I had been brought up with. And there were really two questions that, as I look back and as I think about the time that we're in today, that matter. And the first is, why Jesus? In the sense of, how do we know it's true? What's our evidence? How do we make sense of Jesus? But then there's also the, why Jesus? That meets us in the middle of our pain. Both questions matter. And as we've been in this series called Why Jesus, we're looking at it from a variety of standpoints. And we're going to revisit those questions today. But I want to ask you this morning, as you step into this place, as you think about the people with whom you walk, how do you respond to those questions? Why Jesus? And why Jesus? Those questions matter. How we respond to those questions matter. In our series, we've anchored this in this opening uh, passage from Luke, and I'm going to read this again. Luke 1.1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too 
decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I've been reminding us in this series that we live in a time where many are deconstructing, dismantling. Last couple weeks I've had pieces of the piano that I've been taking apart as kind of an object lesson for that, but it was too much for our worship team. They couldn't handle seeing a piano being torn apart, so I didn't bring any more pieces. I tried to get rid of the harp on Heavy Trash Friday. I drug it out there, but it's still in the court, so i got to figure out what to do with that. But 25% of the church is deconstructing in some way, of dismantling at some level. We said lots of people are walking away from church, and at the same time, there are some encouraging signs of being more spiritually open in our society. So it's kind of a good news, bad news thing, and how do we step into that as a church has been our particular focus. As I said in the welcome, we are a community who sees and shares the hope of Jesus. That's what we want to be about. So there is a, how do I see it? How do I answer the why Jesus questions? And then how do I share that with a world that may not speak the same language. We often talk about how we're ambassadors, how we, our identity is in Christ, that's our primary language, and we are for a community that may not understand it and may be asking different questions. So how do we have our identity in Christ and before a community that may not get it? Now, as we review a little bit. We said last week that there's a purpose that Luke has in mind, and that purpose is a purpose of knowing the certainty of Jesus. And with this word certainty comes safety, comes security, comes this idea that I have something solid on which I can base my faith. And there's also a process a process of careful investigation of the eyewitness accounts. And we've looked at that. You know, how do you know what you know to be true? That we have a belief system that is based on historical truth. And we ought not be afraid to lean into those questions, to do the research, to read the books, to go through that particular process. So there's a process of careful investigation. Now, one thing that I didn't mention last week that I felt led this week to to emphasize, the good news in this process for us is, okay, first of all, how many of you like research projects? Some of you do, right? You like to go out, you like to dig in. The good news about our investigation process, our research process, is we do not have to do it alone because God has given us the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple passages just to anchor that. John 16, 12, I have much more to say to you, says Jesus, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, this is a foundational passage. This is Jesus before he's going to go to the cross. This is what he's sharing with his disciples. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will give you one who will guide you. And in particular, he will, he will guide them as they start the church. He will guide them as they write this stuff down and we get at least two of our, or two of our gospels. 2 Peter 1, 19 says, we also have the prophetic message. This is Peter, one of those disciples writing to the church. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they were moved, as they were led. So we have the Word of God that didn't come to us in a leather-bound deal, is inspired by the Holy Spirit through different writers, different personalities, different context. But friends, may we never forget that it is the Word of God inspired, breathed by the Word of God. Breathed by God. May we have full confidence, full assurance in the truth of God's Word. Amen? That's our foundation. That's how we know what we know to be true. Now, as we think about this purpose and this process I want to lean in this morning to the practice of sharing the hope of Jesus through a gospel conversation. I want us to talk about that practice of actually sharing the hope that we have in a gospel conversation. I choose the word conversation deliberately. Conversation is not a sermon. Conversation is a back and forth. Conversation is multiple people asking and responding to questions. There is curiosity, there is humility, there is seeking to understand. There are all these qualities of a conversation that are going to be critical. So I want to lean into a few how-to's in these gospel conversations. Now, as we get into it today, I want you to, to picture now who are those people in your life that God has put around? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's people you go to school with, people you play sports with, people you just interact with. But have in mind those people and a deep love and care and concern for those people. I want to give us a couple steps in that. And first it's this, to answer the question, why Jesus? 
for yourself? Answer that question for yourself. This is the why without the comma, Jesus. This is the why Jesus won. This is, this is a little bit of that intellectual piece. And, and, and as, as I tried to emphasize last week, and we see this in God's Word, but it's we come to belief, we come to doubt, usually through a combination of factors. It's our reason. Does it make sense? It's a little bit of our experience. It's also part of community, who's around me. As, as I think back to my own story, uh, I went through this four-year process, and, and I, as I look back, I fed my doubts a lot more than I fed my faith. I tended to surround myself more with people who were pulling away than bringing me back towards. And as I think back to 1990, 1994, my first, our first child was born. And that had a funny way of just bringing clarity <laughs> to things. Of, a, wow, the God of the universe is real. How, could, how else could this stuff come to pass? That's not a very deep argument, but it uh, made a difference for me. But anyway, how do we answer the question, why Jesus for ourselves? And this passage that Matt read, I believe, is a helpful anchor for us, and I want to take you to it again. Colossians 1, 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now this is, passage isn't so much an argument that I'm going to make. It's a picture I want you to see. Do you have this view of Jesus? Do you have a clear, compelling picture of Jesus that says all things were created through him, held together by him? Do you have that high of a view of Jesus? I would ask you that this morning. Is that your view? There is an argument here, though, that says that Jesus is supreme. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. That simply means that he is first. That Jesus is always better. That Jesus is first. So I would ask you simply this morning, is Jesus first in your life? Is he first? When something great happens in your life, are you, thank you, Jesus, I'm going to give you the glory and the praise. When you're lower, as, a, as an old coaching buddy of mine, and I'll rephrase it, if you're lower than well, do-do at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Is Jesus the one whom you turn to? 
Those are practical things. Is Jesus first in your life? Is he the most compelling? Is Jesus the one who, wow, when I see this picture of Jesus, he is so beautiful, so real, that everything else pales in comparison. Even your kids and your grandkids. Even your favorite team. Even all your dreams and pursuits, even your your money, your bank account, your retirement, is Jesus the most compelling person in your life? Is he? Is his love for you what you treasure? Everybody else in this world will let you down. I don't care how great your marriage is, you will let each other down. I don't care how great your kids are, your grandkids, they will let you down. I don't care how great your boss is, I don't care how great your coworkers are, your neighbors, whatever, every person on this earth will fail you. Welcome to church. Am I wrong? Everybody will, but, but Jesus is always there for you. He is, that's the supremacy. That's what that means. Is his love for you what you treasure? Now, the second part of this passage this is where it gets personal. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Friends, before we can talk about even having that conversation, let me ask you this. Do you have a but now time in your life? Do you have that moment, and it doesn't have to be, I have this crystal clear moment of a time on the clock and a date on the calendar, but I have have an experience, I have an assurance that I know there was a time when I was far from God, when I was alienated from God, and then I put my faith and trust in God, and now I have been reconciled with Him. Do you have that experience? Have you taken that step of faith and trust in Him? If you don't, if you're not sure, don't stop pretending. (laughs) I love you too much not just to pause and say, look, let's talk about that. If you're not sure, let's have a conversation. And if you're like, no, I I don't buy that, know what you're rejecting. Let's Let's talk. It's too important a question not to answer, not to come to terms with. So as we talk about this gospel conversation bridge of of going from here, my identity is in Christ and I want to be able to share, I want to be able to have a conversation. What is your attitude? 
What is your attitude? And it's the gospel, it's the good news that we didn't earn it. It's the good news that Jesus rescued us, brought reconciliation to us, why we were yet sinners. We didn't. It's that good news that my identity as a child of God is something I have received, not earned or achieved. That gives me the humility to even begin to have that conversation. All right, let's, let's make sure we get that. Now, let's go from why Jesus to why Jesus. As I interact with people, that's the question they seem to be asking more. For, for every question about the truth of the resurrection or the historical evidence for the Bible, any of those why Jesus questions, it's the why Jesus questions that I get. That's been my experience. There's something about the language of pain that is universal. So how then do we respond to those why Jesus questions? Because it tends to go something like this. If God is good and all-powerful and all this Colossian stuff we just read about, and he truly is all the things that we've said, then why, Jesus, are these things happening? Why? It's a question I asked when my friend John was killed. I had just flipped a truck a couple months earlier, walk away with a scratch. Why, Jesus? I was being an idiot. I'm driving way too fast on black ice coming from a place I probably shouldn't have been. Flip the truck. Why do I walk away with a scratch and he dies? It's a good question. Now, amen, let's go home. No, I'm going to give you some answers. But I I need you to feel the question. I need you to feel the weight of the question. And I want to offer three different responses to the question. And I may disappoint you because I don't have enough time. But I want to get you thinking. There are three whys, three ways we might ask the question. The first is what I'm going to call the cry of despair, why? And I'm going to locate this in the hospital room. Have you been there? Something horrible happens. Why, Jesus? Could you allow this to happen? It's in the moment. It's in crisis. It's emotional. It's sadness. It's anger. It's all the feels. So how do we respond? Let me give you a 15-point philosophical response to that question. No, don't do it. Let me give you five scriptures that you can hang on to. Not yet. The first thing you do when you get that question is what? Listen. Empathy. That really hurts. That really hurts. 
That pain is real. Listen. Listen. You might pray, but your first, just be Jesus to them and simply be there. Sit with them in their pain. Sit with them. Don't give them a cliche. Is God in control? Yes. Is that the time to say, don't worry, God is in control? No, it is not. Does God have a plan? Does God work things out together? Is that scripture true? Yes. Do I want to offer it in that moment? No. Because how is that heard? Especially by folks who may not have that. They may not speak that language. That's not the time. Sit first. Sit first. Cry first. Now, can we do that? What does that require for you to do that? It's, It's pray ahead of time. Just sometimes it's Holy Spirit, shut my mouth. Some of the most effective prayers I've ever prayed, Jesus, close my mouth, open my ears. Now, the second, though, I don't want to leave you with that. That's kind of easier to talk about, maybe a little harder to do, but the second one I'm going to call the the processing why. This is, I'm going to locate this in the family room. And here's my response. This is, this is after the initial pain. This is time has gone on and we're, we're trying to make sense of it. Trying to make sense of it. The best description of grief I've, I've heard is it's waves. And they're high and they're frequent at the beginning and they're always going to be there but they're not as high and they get spread out a little bit over time somebody's in pain for whatever reason tragedy hurt loss whatever it is but we get to that point where there's enough distance between the waves of pain that we can begin to process and think through this a little bit are you with me on that the difference between the hospital room and the family room what do we want to show people The compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. One of the unique things about the Christian faith is God himself took on flesh and has experienced all the pain that we've experienced. We ought not shy away from that. How do we give people a picture of the compassion of Jesus? Read the Gospels. We're going to do quite a bit of that this year in the Gospel of Luke. But read the Gospels. I heard a pastor say this, and you know, one of his congregants said, uh, hey, if you gave me a watertight argument for the existence of God, I would believe. And the pastor said, uh, What if God didn't give us a watertight argument, but he gave us a watertight person? And when we read the Gospels, we read the New Testament, that's what begins to emerge. 
But when we're in that family room conversation, we want to show people the compassion of Jesus. Now, the third question, or the third why. I simply call it the need to know more why. I'm going to call it the podcast room. What happens in a good podcast, there's exchange of ideas, there's question and answers. And I want to give you a few questions to ask and a couple thoughts. And then we're going to come back and revisit this next week again. I would suggest this. Ask good questions to understand what someone really believes. Ask good questions. One of the assumptions we make sometimes as believers is I have to have all the answers to the questions. Hey, Christian, why did this happen? How could your Jesus let these things happen? Do you have a watertight answer for that? Do you know in the, in the, in the grand scheme of why this happened? No. <laughs> no. But everybody has to make sense of pain, make sense of suffering, make sense of death. Everybody has to come up with a response. And sometimes when we can flip the questions around a little bit, we can see this simple truth. You know, just because you can't think of a reason why God would allow this to happen doesn't mean that there couldn't be one. I mean, when you really think about it, me and my little brain, I cannot conceive of why God would allow these things to happen. Therefore, there can't be a God. That's a pretty arrogant position <laughs> when you really think about it. So two questions to consider. The first is this. Do you want the gospel to be true? Do you want it to be true? The second, how do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of it? And let's, let's have a conversation about that. I go back to my college days real quick, and, and, and one of the ideas that was, you know, becoming more and more in vogue at the time was what we call secular humanism. Secular in the sense of it's a material world. If you can't, if you can't prove it, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Everything is secular. There's no there's nothing outside the system. There's no God. There's no higher power. And there's humanism, which means there's values, there's human rights, there's dignity of the individual and all those things. I remember my old biology professor saying, you know, science answers these questions, religion, philosophy answers these questions, never the two should meet. Fine. The problem is we live in a world where People want the values, but they don't have a foundation for it. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog evolutionary world. Just the, the purpose is to get your genes into the next generation. Now go love people. <laughs> Those two don't match. 
Okay? We can lean into that. We can ask those questions. But then finally, and this probably is more important than anything, as we have these conversations, as we really lean into them, share your own eyewitness account, your own experience with Jesus. And not just in words, but in the way we love people. Because that ultimately is what will get us to the next conversation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the answer. And Lord, even as we begin to think, as we begin to wrestle, as we begin to look back at our own experience, and as we begin to have good conversation with people, would you guide us? Would you humble us? Would your spirit lead us into all truth? It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.